This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we're mainly going to be in chapter 4, but we're going to read the last verse of chapter 3. So, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll begin reading at the very last verse of chapter 3. This is God's word. Paul writes and he says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Holy Spirit, as we look at these words that you inspired, we pray that you would teach us and draw us uh, into more closer fellowship with Jesus as we pray in his name. Amen. Well, when I thought about this morning, this is such a special service, such a special service I wore a tie this morning, um, I got a little nervous. I thought to myself, what exactly should I preach on my first Celebrate Grace service as lead pastor? And I thought maybe, well, maybe I'll do a psalm or maybe I'll do a New Testament doxology, something that would just help us to see the goodness of God and to praise him for all he is, his goodness, his grace, his mercy to us. But then I thought, no, it might be good for us just this morning to remind ourselves of who we are as a church and what we are committed to in the mission that God has given us as Grace Church at Willow Valley. Just to remind, us or remind ourselves, who are we and what are we all about? Uh, the elders recently over the last year have been having discussions together as to what we could employ as a phrase that might encapsulate exactly what it is that we are seeking to do, why we exist as a church. Uh, if someone would ask you in your workplace, for instance, or in the dining hall over in your retirement community or wherever you may be, if they might ask you, what do you do over there at Grace Church at Willow Valley? What are you guys all about? What would you be able to say to them? We thought this might be a good summary of what we are, that Grace Church exists to see the lost saved and the saved transformed by the gospel. 
that we would employ this as our mission statement, that we want to see unbelieving folks come to saving faith in and, in and through the gospel, and that we ourselves, who are already walking with Jesus, might continue to transform and grow and mature in our walk with him. And if the question comes up, well, how do you do that? How do you seek to do that? Well, we have four tools, four core values that guide us on how to do that. You may have seen them out in our, uh, our church lobby. They are God's glory, our focus, the Bible, our authority, the gospel, our passion, and Christ's church, our family. Who is Grace Church at Willow Valley? Grace Church exists to see the lost saved and the saved transformed by the gospel. How do we do that? By keeping our four core values before us at all times. God's glory, our focus, the Bible, our authority, the gospel, our passion, and Christ's church, our family. That's why we're looking at 2 Corinthians this morning, because I was happy to discover that when Paul talks about his own ministry, he shares the same four core values that we as a church share, which made me feel good um, that we're probably going going down the right track. If it was good enough for Paul, then it should be good enough for us. But here, Paul is describing his own mission and his ministry, and he's telling us what a church, what a gospel ministry should look like. Now, let's get our bearings because we're coming into this letter sort of um, not in the beginning, but uh, sort of in the middle of it. Um, Why is Paul writing 2 Corinthians? Paul is writing this letter defending his own ministry against other ministries that were popping up in his day that claimed to be about Jesus, but were actually all about themselves. And Paul is defending his own ministry by laying out what he does, showing us what a true gospel ministry is, so that we, in turn, might follow his example. And he begins by uh, looking first at God's glory, our focus. Take a look at verse 18 of chapter 3. In verse uh, 18 of chapter 3, he says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul is speaking of how we as believers have been consumed, encapsulated into the the glory of Jesus, that our focus has been taken off of the world and onto the majesty and glory of who Jesus is. And he reminds us that that was not always our story. If you read the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about how our hearts were hardened. We had veils over our eyes that kept us in our sin from being able to see Jesus as he really is. But through the Holy Spirit taking those spiritual blinders off, he enabled us to see Jesus in all his glory and to come to faith in him. And now he says, as believers, we are focused on the glory of Jesus. And as we focus on the glory of Jesus, to our great surprise and shock, We are slowly being transformed into his glory, transformed into Christ-likeness. Some of you, um, many of you know that Hannah and I met when I was 10 and she was 11. We met here in these very walls at Grace Church at Willow Valley. I saw her for the first time downstairs in the gym from across the room. I went, hey, hey, and her dad went, no way. (laughs) And uh, yeah, exactly, Gary. Yeah, he's back there going, uh-huh, uh-huh. 
But uh, we went to the same high school together. We were Penn Manor kids, and we were in the same class in our choir class. And Hannah was one of the pianists for the choir. So she sat in the front of the room up on the piano bench uh, playing the piano. And I have to tell you, um, though the director was uh, doing their thing trying to teach us our music, my focus was not on the director. My focus was on the beautiful girl on the piano bench. And what I discovered is that this beautiful girl was not just beautiful on the outside, but beautiful on the inside. And I, I, I knew right away, this girl has the beauty of the Lord resting upon her. She's a merciful, gracious, compassionate, kind-hearted woman. And now being married to her for many years, I'm discovering that the more that I have lived with her and beheld her glory, she's actually beginning to rub off on me. Praise God. <laughs> and I can say in some way I'm being transformed in little degrees into her glory. That's what Paul's talking about with us as a church. When we gather together, whether it's a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, someone may be up front here directing the worship or whatever, but our focus is on the glory of Jesus. And as we focus on him, by small degrees, we are actually being transformed into his likeness. That is the great goal of the Christian life. All of us, the great goal of the Christian life, the end goal is that we might be transformed into uh, Christ-likeness. We could never exhaust the glory of God in Christ. How could we ever exhaust the wonder of his incarnation or uh, the humility that comes to us when we think about him dying for us, the hope that we have in his resurrection, the, the security that we find in his ascension, and the absolute certainty and hope of his coming once again. We could never exhaust the glory of Jesus. And as we are being wound up by this glory of Jesus, we want to see his glory be spread out to our next door neighbors, to the ends of the earth. And because of this glory, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, take a look at it, because we have seen his glory, he says in verse 1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Despite the darkness and opposition that we see around us, we have seen the glory of Jesus, and it is all-consuming, and therefore, we do not lose heart. Though the darkness grow, though the opposition rise, we have seen the glory of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We've been consumed by his glory and therefore we want to spread his glory out. And if we were to ask ourselves, well, how do you spread about the glory of Jesus? Paul takes us next to the Bible, our authority, the Bible, our authority. Take a look in verse 2. Uh, he talks about how they handled the scriptures and how we ought to handle the scriptures as our great tool for ministry. In verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
He says they had particular standards in their ministry as apostles, particular standards that we should have as a church as well when it comes to the scriptures. They said they refused something and they renounced something. First of all, he says in verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Uh, I'm sure at some point in your life you may have bought a car or a washing machine or a cell phone, something that was a big purchase in retail. And you came away having chosen your car, your washing machine, your cell phone, having come away knowing what you were going to pay, the price that it was going to cost. And then the salesman brought you over to the guy who does the paperwork. And as you're doing the paperwork, you get it all filled out. And then towards the end of his little pitch, he says, now let me tell you some other things that we have on offer here, something to give you a little more assurance and security about what you're buying today, some other goods that we can offer you. And all of a sudden, that price that you originally had, now you're paying hundreds or maybe even thousands more than you originally thought for goods that you never actually were going to use. Now, no offense to any car salesmen here in the congregation or retail people, but I would call that disgraceful, underhanded ways. And that is what Paul is saying they would not do with the scripture. Uh, not, we're not kind of folks who say, now here's the Bible, here's the message. Now, here's some other things for your consideration. Let me, let me just give you some of my opinions or... You know, uh, we've, we've kind of gotten over these things in our day. That, that was during their culture, and, and these things don't really apply to us today. Uh, he says also that they refused cunning or tampering with God's word. That word cunning could off, also be translated as crafty. Where in the Bible do we first hear about someone being crafty? Genesis 3. Who was it? Satan, the serpent. And what did he do with Eve in the garden? He tampered with God's word. What did he say? He went to Eve and he said, now Eve, did God really say? No, Paul says, we're not like that. What do we do instead? In verse 2 at the tail end, he says, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Teach the Bible straightforwardly, hold to it as it sits, interpret it responsibly, and don't tamper with it. Just open statement of the truth. No matter how unpopular it may may be, uh, when we get to text about marriage or sexuality in our day, as unpopular as the Bible's view is, we hold to it as our authority, as our truth. The scriptures are our greatest tool and treasure in life and ministry. It contains all that we need to believe and all that we need to practice. I don't know how many of you have ever looked at a Gideon Bible uh, in maybe a hotel room or something. Have you ever opened up the cover and seen the inside insert of how they explain the scriptures and what they are? It's beautiful. If you open a Gideon Bible, this is what you'll read inside. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, 
food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. That's pretty good. I so love your love for the scripture. We have a church that loves the Bible. Uh, and the way I know that is because when I'm up here on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night when we're teaching, and we often say, take a look at verse, da 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 da, da. You know what happens? All your heads go down. It's almost like a magic trick. It's really fun to watch, actually. <laughs> take a look at verse, and you're all, boom, right down. But I'm telling you, there are places that you could go, and you could ask people during a Bible lesson or a sermon, take a look at and no heads go down. But they just look at you like this. Or they look at you like this. Or they look at you like this. <laughs> but here, when we say, take a look at verse, boom, you're there. Oh, God, increase our love for the word here at Grace. And the Bible is necessary for us because it is the only place where we can discover Jesus Christ and the way of salvation through him. It's the only way that we know how to point people to the good news of the gospel. As Luther said, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. And that takes us to the third point, uh, the gospel, our passion. Um, actually, in, in chapter 2, in chapter 2, in verse 14 through 17, take a look at chapter 2, verse 14 and 17. Heads are going down, that's good. Um, he actually talks about how we are spreading this, this knowledge of Christ, the gospel. And this is what he says. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak. Paul was under no illusions as to the objection that the unbelieving world has to the gospel. Uh, we all know that sometimes when we share the gospel with our friends and family, it's like they're, they're there and they're locked in. It's, it's like an aroma of life. But other times, Paul says, we share the gospel with our friends and family, and it's like we've dropped a stink bomb in the middle of the conversation. It's met with absolute just rejection and ob objection. Why is that? Well, Paul tells us in chapter three, in verse, uh, chapter four, verse three, chapter four, verse three, he says, why is it that some are not accepting of this gospel that we are sharing? He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul looks at the unbelieving world, and he doesn't just see hardened hearts. He sees something deeper at work. He sees unseen spiritual forces of darkness. And the lostness of believers does not make him jaded. It does not make him angry. It makes him brokenhearted at the captivity of sinners. Lost people who are essentially spiritually blindfolded by Satan. 
And the only thing that can take those blinders off is the Holy Spirit. And Paul is able to identify the correct enemy. The enemy for Paul was not unbelievers. The enemy for Paul was Satan who was binding unbelievers from being able to see the glory of Jesus. He would have loved the song that we sing, O Church Arise, in the verse where it says, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. We love the unbeliever. And if we're angry and raging against anyone, it is not the unbeliever, but Satan. It's such a crucial distinction. There is all the difference in the world between a church that adopts an us-against-them mentality versus a Christ-for-them when we think about the unbelieving world. I, in a church like ours, I, I would like to think that we take the Bible seriously and that we're serious about our faith and the distinctions of Christianity and uh, the world. But in a church like ours, could, isn't it so easy to become sort of puffed up and self-righteous towards the unbelieving world, where all of a sudden we, we become sort of like the Pharisees that we've been reading about in the Gospel of Mark, uh, where we start looking at the world and we say, well, look at us. We have figured it out. We're the holy ones. We're the ones who got it. Those people, geez, those people, oh my word, have you seen them? And we forget verse 6, verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We forget that we were hardened hearts and sinners lost forever, and that the only thing that made the difference was nothing that we did for ourselves. But God one day said, I'm going to turn the lights on in your heart so that you might see the glory of Jesus and believe. See, when, when, we, when we start getting self-righteous and we forget Christ for them rather than us against them, what we're really doing is we're beginning to proclaim ourselves and not Jesus. But in verse 5, what does he tell us? In verse 5, he says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. Not anything we've done, not any of our accolades, but Christ Jesus as Lord. I love this verse. Incidentally, um, I just wanted to share this with you. When I was on paternity leave, some men in our church took the pulpit and they got, um, I don't know what you call it, I'm not a craftsman, the guy burned the words into the, what do you call that? Etching? Etching? But every time that I, I come up to the pulpit, what is in front of me? What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That is where we stand as a church. That is the gospel that is our passion. Not that we had done something to really impress God and isn't God lucky to have us on his team. But that we were born into this world as sinners 
and we have willingly defied God. But God in his love and his grace and his mercy sent his son into this world to die for our sins, to rise again that we might rise, and uh, to, 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 to ultimately sit at his right hand and intercede for us. And he asks us not to try to earn uh, that gift that he has given, but just to receive it by the empty hands of faith. We are all a grace case, all of us sinners who have been shown grace. And that takes us lastly to uh, Christ church, our family. Christ church, our family. Look at the tail end of verse 5. Tail end of verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, then what about ourselves? He says, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Who are we? We are each other's servants. I was eating at Coffee Co. one morning this week, and uh, an old couple came in. It doesn't really matter how old they were, but they were old. Um, and <laughs> they sat down next to me. And they may have waited only you know, two minutes or something like that. It wasn't very long. But I heard them grumbling to one another, wow, we've been sitting here for like 10 minutes. Oh, and there was one, there was only the poor lady, she, there was just one waitress and she was doing the whole dining room. So she had her hands full. She was looking at other people. She wasn't neglecting her job. But this old man's there and he's, oh, 10 minutes. Well, do they not train these young kids anymore? Blah, 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 blah. And finally, it's only been about two minutes. He gets up and he goes over to this poor girl and he says, hey, is there some point we're going to get some service around here? And this poor girl very sweetly said, oh, oh yes, uh, absolutely. Yes, for sure. Just one moment. And you know what he said? He looked at her, he went, oh yeah, absolutely, sure, one moment. That's what he did. And then they're sitting there after they've been served. Do you know what they started complaining about? Complaining about everyone else sitting there enjoying their food. I, I was like, what are you doing? They even started talking about me. Like, what's that guy doing over there? I'm just trying to eat my breakfast and enjoy my coffee and get some of my reading done. <laughs> but then I thought to myself, isn't that sometimes how we walk into the church? When is someone going to wait on me around here? Look at that weirdo over there. What's he doing? And what's going on with that family over there? I don't know if you've noticed that our, our, our youth group has a sign outside their um, door, the student ministry room down the hall, and I think teenagers are having some fun because the sign should say, we're glad that you're here, but they rearranged it so it says, you're glad we're here. But that's how we walk in sometimes. All right, party started. I'm here. You're glad that I'm here. I know it. I know it. No, what are we? The verse does not say yourselves as our servants. It says ourselves as your servants. For what? For Jesus' sake. One way that we worship Jesus as a church together, it's not just by praying together, not just by singing songs, looking at the Bible. One crucial way that we serve Jesus as a church is by, worship, or by serving one another, serving one another for Christ's sake. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life up. I love what the Gettys say in their hymn. They say, beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. 
Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through Christ alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, we see the children called by God. Because who are we at the end of the day? Take a look at verse 7, and we're almost done. At the end of the day, who are we? Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're just little flower pots. You, you bump into us, we're going to get scratched. You drop us, we break. Anything that we can boast of, any of our accolades, anything that we've accomplished, it's not because of us, but to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Carl Truman, writing years ago, he said, the routine of the ordinary, the boring, the plodding, is actually the norm for church life. The mega whatevers are the exception, not the rule. The church has survived throughout the ages, not because of the high-profile firework displays of the great and the good, but because of the day-to-day -day faithfulness of the mundane, anonymous, nondescript people who constitute most of the church and who do the grunt work and the tedious jobs that need to be done. History does not generally record their names, but the likelihood is that you worship in a church that owes everything, humanly speaking, to such people. We're just a bunch of nobodies who have the privilege of serving the greatest somebody. And just like he did, we put the towel around our waist and we bow down and we wash the feet of the nobodies. When all is said and done, friends, we can only celebrate grace. Not anything that we've done, but everything that he has done in and through us. Who are we that we get to serve the king? That we get to be his royal representative and, and be in a family full of his royal priests? So together, let's strive to see the lost saved and the saved transformed by the gospel. And when the going gets tough, and it will, there's going to be times where it's not easy, people aren't going to like us, there's going to be times where we don't like each other. Well, then we remind ourselves in verse 1 that we do not lose heart, having this ministry by the mercy of God, that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I love what Ray Ortland says, and this will really will close with, I really am done. <laughs> he says, at this very moment, Jesus is sprinting through our exhausted world, gathering up despairing sinners left and right, breathing new life into them, and having a blast doing so. And that is the king that we serve. Uh, the lion of Judah is roaring. Aslan is on the move, he is not jaded, he is not intimidated, and he is not tired. Despite the darkness, despite the opposition, we may be jaded, we may be tired, we may be intimidated, but he is not. And he is the king, and it is his power that will help us to see the lost saved and the saved transformed by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to... Um, be a part of your kingdom. Thank you for the hope that you have given us in Jesus. And we pray, just as Paul wrote, that we might just stare at the glory of Jesus, 
that his glory might be our focus and that as it is that we'd be transformed into his likeness. Uh, May the Bible always be the authority here among us, uh, our greatest tool, our greatest treasure in life and in ministry. We pray that the gospel message, the message alone that can save, would be our passion, that we would not become jaded towards the unbelieving world as defiant as they are against you and, and what you command, but that rather the lostness of the world would break our hearts and draw us into an even greater passion for our uh, unsaved loved ones to hear the good news and to come to faith. Lord, help us to remember we're not coming in saying, you're glad we're here, but rather that we would see ourselves as each other's servants, bowing down as Jesus bowed down to wash one another's feet, to serve each other in our need, uh, to love one another as you have commanded. God, we celebrate your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness over this past year, and we just want to lift you up and say thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.